if you want to do it, man, I'm down. I was mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's for the smile? Face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. Um, so for this episode, uh, we are taking a look at The Day the Earth Stood Still, the original version, not the terrible, terrible remake, which I'm sure will come up in conversation. But we're taking a look at the original in connection with another movie about uh, about outer space, about life in outer space uh, called Life. Um, and to do that, I have a brand new guest. So, Chelsea Wilford, thanks for joining the show. Thanks. I'm glad you asked. Yeah, absolutely. So is there uh, is there any place people can find you online or anything you want to kind of advertise? Um, you can find me writing reviews at Chelsea Loves Movies over on WordPress. And I'm on Twitter at, at Jana Williford. Nice. Perfect. All right. So before I talk about the psychology, today we'll be talking about xenophobia. Um, did you have a couple movie recommendations for us? I did. And they're going to be kind of on the nose here, but it's what <laughs> popped in my head. I, didn't, I couldn't get away from it. Um, the first one will obviously be Arrival. I mean, right. of course, the idea aliens coming to Earth to try to make humans be peaceful. I mean, you couldn't get away from that connection. Yeah, that's a great choice. That's a, I mean, obviously a movie I think that, you know, did really well this year, did really well as far as uh, awards, but I think definitely a movie worth seeing that people should go check out if they somehow missed it while it was in the theaters. Yeah, it would be, it's kind of hard to miss that one. Yes. <laughs> um, my other suggestion, this one's also kind of on the nose, but it's a little bit more old or older, mm-hmm. uh, Iron Giant, the animated film. Yeah, you know, just the the military overreaction, like immediate, oh no, enemies. I had that yes. same kind of feel with it. But definitely, um, definitely a animated film that I think is is good for all ages. But it it has a lot there for adults as well, which is always cool. Oh yeah, there's a lot of you know references. You know, it's set in the '50s, so it's kind of got that Cold War thing going on. You know, things that little kids probably wouldn't understand yet. So it definitely has a lot for adults. I know I watched it as a child, and then watching it again as an adult, it's a completely different experience, but just as fulfilling. All right, great. So we are going to take a break. I will talk about xenophobia, and then we'll bring you back to talk about the day the Earth stood still. All right. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the Following Films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deep Water Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. Even better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so it's time for the psychological section. So today, for the day the earth stood still, we are taking a look at xenophobia, which is really an easy theme to talk about. Anytime aliens come into the picture in a movie, usually it is a metaphor for xenophobia because we are scared of that which we do not understand. So xenophobia is the fear of that which is perceived to be foreign or strange. But it's important to note that, yes, we use aliens in this context, but this really comes and rears its ugly head when we're talking about other people, but we we do feel we do view people from other places and people who look different or act differently as foreign or strange. So xenophobia can manifest itself in lots of ways, and it's usually involving the relationships and perceptions of an in-group towards an out-group, which can include a fear of losing the in-group's identity, suspicion of activities outside of that group, aggression, and a, and a desire to just eliminate the presence of that outgroup in order to secure some presumed purity of the in-group. It can also be exhibited in the form of an uncritical exaltation of another culture in which a culture is described as unreal, stereotyped, or exotic. So it's easy to see that as positive, to see it as unreal, like ethereal, but that can be just as harmful 
as seeing it as negative. And if you want to take a closer look at that, I would just go online and look up the term model minority, especially when talking about people of Asian descent. There can be just as much harm done with that kind of attitude as, say, the attitude we've had towards black people in this country, which is definitely not a model minority, but much more of a judged harshly minority. So the terms xenophobia and racism sometimes are used interchangeably because people who share a national origin may also belong to the same race. But that's not necessarily true. So due to this, xenophobia is usually distinguished by opposition to a foreign culture. It's a political term and not like a medical phobia, as it were. Dictionary definitions of xenophobia include deep-rooted fear towards foreigners and fear of the unfamiliar. And the word comes from the ancient Greek uh, xenos, which means strange foreigner, and phobos, which means fear. So the scholarly definition of xenophobia, though, is an element of a political struggle about who has the right to be cared for by the state and society, a fight for the collective goods of the modern state. So in other words, it, it comes up, it arises when people feel that their entitlement to benefits from the government are being subverted by other people's rights. Okay, so as far as the history, the earliest example we really know of, of xenophobic sentiment in Western culture, that is, is the ancient Greeks. And they would denigrate the foreigners and call them barbarians. And they believed that Greek people and culture were superior to those of others. And that that conclusion led us that barbarians were, barbarians were naturally meant to be enslaved. Ancient Romans also had these notions of superiority over other people as they built their huge empire. And there is a speech attributed to Manius Sicilius who said, there, as you know, there were Macedonians and Thracians and Illyrians, almost warlike nations. Here, Syrians and Asiatic Greeks, the most Worth, the most worthless peoples among mankind and born for slavery. So that is a really easy way to kind of denote what we're talking about when we talk about xenophobia. It's not just like I'm uncomfortable with people who are different from me. That line of thought leads to some really dangerous places, especially if people in power are xenophobic. And frankly, if you're a listener and you live in the United States, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now, right now and I don't even have to go any further. All right. So as far as other manifestations, um, in Malaysia in 2014, the state of Penang held a referendum that banned foreigners from cooking local cuisine. Um, and so so there were some well-known chefs who came out and said this was a terrible thing. But this is a small example, right, of xenophobia and what what comes of it is this idea that like now people who are passionate about their work can no longer do their work. And of course, xenophobia in South Africa has been present in both the apartheid and post-apartheid eras. Hostility between the, the British and the Boers ex were, was exacerbated by the Second Boer War, which led to a rebellion, um, and they looted British-owned shops. South Africa also passed a bunch of acts intended to keep out Indians, uh, such as the Immigration Regulation Act of 1913, which provided for the exclusion of undesirables, a group of people that included Indians. This effectively halted all Indian migration. So that's just one example in, in South Africa. And of course, in America, we do not exactly have the best history with this either. I mean, if you want to talk about um, the Trail of Tears with the Native American peoples, which was, you know, essentially designed to kill them off, if you want to talk about you know, uh, Asian people being put in internment camps uh, during the World War. I mean, this is we immediately look at someone who looks differently or acts differently or looks like or looks close to someone who is the quote unquote enemy. Then we immediately put them in camps and do terrible things to them. So we are not immune to this. No one is immune to the xenophobia. In-group and out-group stuff is really powerful. And I mean, you can see it. You can see it in in niches. Like if you look at any movie that's about high school kids and they always talk about the different groups and there's you know the jocks and the nerds and the you know what, whatever groups you want to talk about and if you try and move between those groups or talk to people outside of your group or talk to a group that is kind of the the opposite of your group you end up getting in a lot of trouble and that is just like a microcosm of what happens in life in real life like we have those groups too and the groups tend to be a little bit more broad and tend to allow a little bit more mobility but there is a limit to how far you can go in and out of those groups. The first article we're going to cover is about national identity, national pride, and xenophobia. And in this study, they wanted to compare four different Western countries to take a look at how those things are connected. So they talk about in this article how xenophobic attitudes are actually pretty normal, uh, and they're not new, and they're not likely to disappear. So, but there is a discrepancy between racist actions and xenophobia. So really what they wanted to see is there's these kind of proposed positive ideas like national identity and national pride, but is it connected to this very negative aspect, which which can be connected to it, in xenophobia? 
So this is one of the studies where they took data from another study and kind of applied it elsewhere. So this was all taken from something in 1995 called the International Social Survey Program. So this study deals with areas like national identity, nationalism, national pride, globalism, and xenophobia. And as I mentioned, they didn't want to just get like a country-specific ideal. So they took four different countries. They looked at Australia, Germany, Great Britain, and Sweden. And briefly, we'll just talk a little bit about definition. So what is national identity? National identity is seen as the awareness of affiliation with the nation that gives people a sense of who they are in relation to others or infuses them with a sense of purpose that makes them feel at home. National pride is something else. So you shouldn't confuse it with nationalism because nationalism has more negative connotations. National pride involves individual sentiments towards the nation you're a part of, whereas nationalism operates on different levels, combining an ideology of unity amongst the members of a society and individual sentiments. Okay, so here's what they found with this data, is that having an ethnic national identity is associated with an increased risk of being xenophobic, while having a civic national identity does not. The same seems to be true for na for national pride, since the political definition, since the political dimension of national pride actually shows negative correlation with xenophobia, and the cultural dimension shows a positive correlation with it. So basically what we're finding, and this is true in all four of the countries they were looking at, is that if your national pride and your association with your, your nation has to do with civic duty and being a part of that country, then you're not gonna you're not gonna go towards xenophobia. But if your pride and your connection is based based on the ethnic model, so if it's based on like people who look like me, people who act like me, people who sound like me, not as far as like what we give to the country, what we give to one another, then you're going to be much more likely to be xenophobic. So it's not a matter of like, oh, if you have a national identity, if you're proud of being from America or Australia or wherever it is that you're from, you're not nece necessarily going to be xenophobic. There's kind of a, a different, deeper level to it that is if you see people in your country as one color or one type or sounding and looking like one thing, then you're going to run into a lot of trouble with being xenophobic. All right, so now it's time for our last article. And I really had to search for this because something I'm noticing when you go look up articles about xenophobia, what you find, you find a lot of stuff about the past. You find stuff about xenophobia in Germany uh, before World War II. Uh, you found a lot of things about uh, countries where people of color live uh, now, uh, like South Africa, but you don't find a lot about xenophobia in the United States, although we know it exists and there's been this undercurrent of xenophobia, which has led to kind of the the government we have now. So it's interesting that there hasn't been that much research, and I think we maybe think a little too highly of ourselves, like that doesn't exist here. But anyway, okay, so but the article I did find is about the United States. It's it's not a usual kind of article. It's more of a discussion about xenophobia rather than, you know, an actual study. But it's called Xenophobia, Understanding the Roots and Consequences of Negative Attitudes Toward Immigrants. And this is from Yakushko in 2009. And it's interesting, like this is one of the few articles that as early as 2009 was talking about that our cultural environment was actually pretty xenophobic was actually pretty xenophobic. She says the current xenophobic cultural environment in the United States makes it imperative that we as psychologists understand the nature of xenophobia and recognize those consequences. So what the article does is it starts looking at the sociological, the social psychological, and multicultural research to examine the causes of these negative attitudes towards immigrants. And xenophobia gets presented as a concept descriptive of a socially observable phenomenon. And then they kind of examine the historical and contemporary expressions of xenophobia in the United States um, and compared with this kind of scholarship of cross-cultural study on negative attitudes towards immigrants. And then she provides some suggestions for how psychologists can actually use this, use this understanding of xenophobia and put it into their clinical practice, training, research and advocacy for public policy. So she also goes into the history of immigration and attitudes towards immigrants in the United States. So the United States, of course, has been known throughout history as a nation of immigrants. But at the same time, we have a really long history of xenophobia and complete intolerance of immigrants. For instance, white Western Europeans who colonized the Americas moved to the United States relatively freely and in great numbers until the restrictions of the early 1900s. 
And then in 1921, the Congress passed the Quota Act, which established this new system of national origin restrictions, which favored northern European immigrants over those from other regions of the world. And this was just the start. There's many, many immigration laws going, you know, starting them going all the way to the, you know, the 40s and 50s that had a strong prejudice against individuals of German descent, as well as those who might be communist. Uh, with the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the ethnically and racially restrictive immigration quotas were challenged. And in 1965, the Immigration and Nationality Act abolished these quotas that favored European immigrants. So this policy actually results in a really significant demographic shift in immigrant populations, with nearly 50% of documented immigrants entering the United States from Latin America and the Caribbean, 25% from Asia, and less than 15% from Europe by the year 2000. Now, I've already talked about the definition of xenophobia, but we don't have to, so we don't have to go into that. But scholars have also used the term nativism uh, to describe negative feelings toward immigrants and immigration. Uh, and there was an author, Higgum, in 1988, who provided the following definition, which we're going to use here. It's an intense opposition to an internal minority on the grounds of its foreign or un-American connections. I think that covers it completely. And if you want to see another movie that talks about that, you should see uh, Gangs of New York. Martin Scorsese's film talks a lot about nativists versus, uh, versus the immigrants. So it's interesting. It's interesting they started using this term nativism because it's typically used because there's an emphasis on the neutrality of the word in contrast to xenophobia, which implies this presence of prejudice or fear. However, even those scholars who use the term nativism usually highlight the negative implication of these attitudes. So this is why in this study they use the term xenophobia because I, I think they wanted to be a little more honest about it. So usually when people talk about social issues, it all comes down to, okay, so what? Why do we care about this? So what's the impact of xenophobia? So this atmosphere of hostility, that hostility that xenophobia fosters can actually shape the cultural discourse on immigration and can have really bad effects on people who are the targets of prejudice towards immigrants. Now, images of immigrants in the population are often negative and really inconsistent. They're likely to be portrayed in stereotypical ways like criminal, uneducated, or lazy. Uh, films about immigrants tend to create an image of scheming mail order brides and lots of TV shows about criminal elements in the in the U.S. Uh, focus on immigrant mafia and gangs as sources of threat to the American public. And there's also a habit of sexualizing or completely desexualizing immigrant women, immigrant women in media. And it's also important that the negative influence of perceived discrimination and prejudice can extend to the second generation of immigrants. For example, there's one article from Hernandez and they found that psychological and social functioning of immigrant of immigrant children and adolescents declined from first to second generation across all studied immigrant groups. It's possible that one of the explanations for this is related to both the racist and xenophobic environments in which environments are exposed in their host country. It can also carry a negative influence for individuals who experience it. Uh, similar to other forms of prejudice, studies about racial minorities within the United States have shown that experiences of both blatant and subtle racism have dramatic costs for those who are targeted by this prejudice. Certainly, xenophobia results in significant costs for the well-being of recent immigrants. And future studies really should be aimed at investigating the role of xenophobia on immigrants' well-being by examining the immigrants' perceptions of this anti-immigrant hostility in their lives. Also, attention must be given to the influences, of course, of these intersecting oppressions on immigrants of color, lesbian and gay immigrants, immigrant women, and immigrants with disabilities. So psychology really stands in an excellent position to challenge this kind of societal milieu that justifies xenophobia and instead proactively actually address the unique needs of immigrant populations. Okay, so how can the field of psychology help? Well, there's really two ways— two areas that we need to focus on. And one of them is in in our practice. So the very fact that we would be aware of, of xenophobia is really important. But what's more important is that we actually reach out and help people who are affected by xenophobia. Now, here's the problem. Probably the people most affected by xenophobia are not going to have the money to go to a private practice and, you know, slap down anywhere from 80 to, you know, $200 for every session. So what we have to do is actually reach out and do something that most people won't do, which is offer our services for free. 
Uh, and it's something that's actually in the American Psychological Association's ethics code. Is that something we should strive for is to do more pro bono work? Uh, and that's something that desperately is desperately needed because people who go through this, who experience the xenophobia, xenophobia, not only are have all these negative effects that we talked about, but desperately need someone to talk to to kind of get them to a place where they can succeed. So that should be our job and should be a part of it is reaching out to those communities and being a part of that. The second part, and actually probably the more important part, is training and education. So another thing we need to do as, as, as psychologists become real psychologists and get their licenses is to give back to the field at large, whether that's um, doing more research on these marginalized communities where sometimes there's not a lot of money for that research, going into, into schools, into graduate level programs and talking about these things, which they are actually doing a much better job of, and also educating the public. Um, there are ways we can actually reach out into these, not only the communities that are affected by xenophobia, but the communities that are doing the affecting and actually teach people about the effects that this has. Because I think sometimes when you talk about marginalized groups, there are there are groups of people with with privilege who sometimes don't really realize the effect they have. And I think if you have faith in people, and some of us do and some of us don't, if you can teach people about privilege and teach people about xenophobia and the effects that it has, I think there's a good chance that we can educate people and maybe make them think about their actions before they before they open their mouths or before they do anything. And I think that's really important. All right. So that's it for our psychological section. When we come back, we will talk about the day the earth stood still. Watched the movie. Check. Popped the popcorn. Check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home. Check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, what's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right. Uh, so now we're back. We've talked about the psychology. So let's talk about the movie. So we always kind of like to talk about our history with these movies. So had you ever seen this before? I hadn't. I actually didn't. Like I had, um, it was supposed to be watched for a class that I took, but I didn't watch it. Oh no, <laughs> you rebel! Yeah, I took you know film history before 1946 and after 1946, and this is one of the you know Cold War era films for after 1946. And that week, I just wasn't feeling it, so I just kind of watched. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. I mean, kind of similar for me. I had never seen this before. This is one of those movies that, I mean, even if you've never seen a clip from it, I think most people like you hear the title and you immediately know of it. Uh, and then I remember, I remember when the, the remake came, came out, the Scott Derrickson directed Keanu Reeves starring, uh, remake. And I thought, I thought then like, I should see the original and still never got around to it. So this episode just gave me, and I do this a lot. It gives me an excuse to watch those movies I should have watched by now. Um, so I finally got a chance to watch, uh, The Daily Earth Stood Still. And I actually watched the remake right after that, just to kind of see, uh, where everything went wrong and what was done with that movie. Uh, so what was your experience of watching it for the first time like? I really enjoyed it. Um, I was surprised. At how, you know, how serious it was. This one it was one that I've always heard. It's kind of like, oh, it's a lighthearted film. Just watch it. I mean, you see a guy getting shot twice. So that's a little bit more dramatic than I was expecting. But when you look at the subject matter, I kind of wonder how people told me what they did tell me. Right. So, yeah, it was a good one to watch. I liked it. Yeah. I, I also had a really good experience watching it. I, was, I, I always, and I usually needlessly, but I always worry when I watch movies from – 
you know, anywhere from 1940 to 1960 and be like, oh, it's such a different time. It's a different style of acting, a different style of filmmaking. Am I going to be able to get into this? Um, but I thought this was vastly superior to the remake they made for a number of reasons. And I really enjoyed my time with it. I connected with several of the characters. Um, like, and we'll talk about kind of in production value, the special effects, like whether they hold up or not. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is kind of, old school cerebral sci-fi that I think you brought up Arrival in the, in your recommendations. And that's one of the things I loved about Arrival is that it was so, it was so focused on the thought process. It wasn't about big action and explosions. Like, and the same thing here, we have a, we have kind of two, I mean, I wouldn't even call them action beats, but for 1951, I guess this is what would pass in a science fiction film as an action beat. Like you have the thing with the, the tank in the beginning and then with the electricity going out later. I mean, these are really simple things, but I think they're handled really well in the film. Yeah, I was not expecting a science fiction film to be so character focused. I mean, I, that sounds stupid since that, you know, suggested arrival, but <laughs> this one was, it was just generally a man who doesn't understand humans trying to understand humans. <laughs> and you could really follow his thought process as he, you know, walked around and met people and talked to like the little boy. I think like, his interactions with the little boy, it seemed really believable. Like you yeah. could, you could buy that even though this guy, obviously he's just a dude. He's not like <laughs> a crazy alien. You could buy that this guy isn't a human. You could buy that. Oh, he doesn't understand us at all. Just through his interactions with the little boy, even without all of the other, you know, bigger impact scenes. Yeah, totally. Uh, so let's talk about the direction. This, this, this was directed by Robert Wise, who's pretty well known, made a lot of our kind of great films. I mean, The Sound of Music, West Side Story, Star Trek, The Motion Picture, The Day the Earth Stood Still. So this is this is not some nobody. Sometimes we'll do these older movies and be like, this director, I got nothing. I don't I don't know his style. I don't know what he what he's done. But this is someone who's really well known. Uh, and one of the things, one of the choices he made that's now, I think, been repeated over and over and over again in these science fiction films is the use of of the news reports um, which I really like it sets it sets the stakes really high so you know it's not just like in this little neighborhood you figure out like okay this is worldwide and this is something real this is not some hallucination that these people are seeing in this one town so I like that I, I felt like he set the stakes really well yeah I mean I've seen a lot of well I don't say I don't say a lot but I've seen a good few of his films and they all hold up in the direction, you know, some old films, the way they're directed don't really match up with what we're used to now. <laughs> but with these, the, the logic, the humanity is all still there. It's, it's all, it, it has something. You mentioned the newsreel stuff. It all has something to connect you to, oh, this is real. This is, you know, something that could have happened. You know, even though it's <laughs> science fiction, it still feels like something that definitely could have happened. Yeah, it definitely felt grounded the whole time. And I mean, that's pretty impressive since like you start out this movie and there's a, you know, there's a man in a giant metal suit that comes watching walking out. But this movie does feel realistic and feel grounded. And I think another way he does that is using scale in this movie. There's when the, the spaceship first lands, they make the they make a choice to have it land right next to a baseball diamond. So, you know, right away just how big this thing is. There's no question. It's not just like, oh, well, we're walking up to this. So we assume it must be big. I think he sets that he sets that up really well as a director because you could have you could have put that put that uh, spaceship down anywhere and just kind of left it at that. But I like the idea that we show just how large this thing is. Yeah, that was I mean, that was one of the things that kind of tied, you know, tied it into Arrival for me is the fact that like in Arrival you had the mountains for scale. But in this one, mm. you saw it coming over the building and you're like, oh, that's not that big. But then as it actually approaches the ground, you have an exact scale because everyone knows, you know, a baseball diamond is like a set size. Mm -hmm. So you realize, oh, everyone can identify how large this is. If it had been like in a field, you know, like the whole crop circle thing, then right. it would be like, oh, hey, there's a thing out in the middle of this unknown size field right. that it would just be harder for people. It's not even like something you consciously think about. It's just like, Oh, you understand this is this size. So you understand this spaceship is huge and it kind of ups the tension. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I also find it interesting because like, especially during this time, and we still get this now, but especially then baseball was America's pastime. Like it's the thing that symbolizes America kind of more than anything else during that period of time. And I find it interesting that we're having this, this spaceship that carries this person who is going to kind of try and bring the world together and leave this kind of individualism out kind of put shadow over this kind of American pastime. I thought it was a really interesting choice to have that in particular. It could have been a football field. It could have been any number of things, but the the choice of the baseball diamond was definitely really interesting. Yeah. And just having it set in Washington, DC, that's another, yeah. you know, that's a, such a noticeable place. And we saw a lot of these noticeable places, like the Arlington cemetery and the Lincoln Memorial. And it was just these things that are so grounded in American ideals yet he's trying to find the people who actually live up to those ideals rather than, you know, the everyday, I think he called them angry or mean or something like that. The way that people, you know, they live such a short time, they get angry at one another so easily. And he comes from a society where, you know, the great words of Lincoln that he talked about, those are kind of the words people live by in his culture. So he's trying to figure out like, the disconnect there between American ideals and the actual Americans. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think you can even kind of extend that past America, but just this whole idea of um, who we see ourselves as versus who we really are. And if someone were to come down kind of unaware of the difference between those two, you can see how that would be really frustrating. And I think you get that in some of the conversations when the alien first lands, like he does, he truly doesn't understand, you know, the whole idea of this, you know, a place called the United Nations where no one gets along. Like, and it's just yeah. one of those things that you wouldn't understand coming, coming from outside, but inside, you know, we just kind of take it at face value. Yeah, I kind of, I thought it was kind of amusing how he's coming here with this great gift and he's like, I'm going to hand you this gift and then he gets shot for it. Right. That's like. <laughs> so American. Was, like just. <laughs> The other thing I noticed from a directorial perspective is, you know, we have our character of Klaatu, who's our alien, and I love that he's always filmed in a powerful position. He's never, he's almost always the tallest person in the room, and even the way the camera is situated, it's usually looking up at him. So, like, he doesn't, as an actor, he has to do less to convince us that he is this powerful creature, this powerful person, because uh, from Robert Wise, from a directorial perspective, has kind of placed us in that perspective of below him kind of at all points unless he's kind of talking to the kid i noticed that like they're the only ones who seem like on on an even keel and it made me wonder is it this idea of like well this kid hasn't been sullied by the world yet so he can see eye to eye with this character yeah i definitely think that's probably got something to do with it because this kid he kind of has the same you know idealized view of the world you know hasn't jaded hasn't been jaded by the world yet and it's kind of him connecting with this little kid because no one else has the same open and hopeful, you know, experience with life that Klaatu does. So let's, so that kind of moves us, I think, into, into the acting. So of course we have, um, we have Klaatu played by uh, Michael Rennie. So what did you think of his performance in general? I mean, we started talking about a little bit with him being able to kind of, um, kind of process that, that idea as an actor of kind of not understanding the world and trying to kind of make his way. I actually really liked him. I'm not familiar with this guy. I mean, he's probably been in a lot of stuff that I just haven't seen. Right. But I really admired how he made it really come across like he's a peaceful alien that is getting fed up. Like you can, you can actually see without really outbursts, like just in the way he looks at people throughout the film, he's getting fed up with these folks. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was one thing I was, I'm always worried with these older movies about the acting style, which I mentioned. And when you have a movie that takes a lot of, a lot of dialogue work and a, a lot of kind of trying to get your point across. Like this is a movie that has a lot on its mind. It's not just going to be like some, some fun romp, some science fiction romp. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of kind of heavy dialogue and I think he handles it all really well. And I think the, 
The best parts with him, I think, are the scenes uh, with Bobby, with the kid, where he clearly doesn't understand how things work. Like there's a whole sequence where he doesn't know how money works and he's trying to – and it's interesting watching the, the kid process all this too because if if you said that to an adult, an adult would be like something is clearly wrong here. But I think the kid plays it in this way that kind of adults are a mystery to him anyway. Like nothing they do makes sense. So like this is just kind of an extra level. So he just kind of goes along with it. And I find those scenes really charming. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like how the sneaky little kid, he's like... I'm going to get this diamond. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll give you these $2 for those two diamonds. Like, he knows <laughs> what he knows what's up. But he's like, hey, if you want to do it, man, I'm down. It's right. Just, it's, it's, it's amusing to see how he interacts. Like, he... He he has, you know, the child's mentality, but there are moments where he's looking at this guy like, what's wrong with you, man? Like right. When they're at the Arlington Cemetery, he's like, you've never heard of the Arlington Cemetery? Right. He just knows something's up, but he's like, eh, I'm going to go along with it because grown-ups are weird. Yeah, exactly. I also think um, Michael Rennie has this really great ability to do two things. One is, like, to be this wonderful blank slate. Like, he just looks like the kind of stereotypical you know, white man in the 1950s. Like he just looks that part, but he also has this kind of consistent smirk on his face during the whole movie where he's like constantly amused by what these creatures are doing, what these humans are doing. So that also puts us in this place where we know, and he knows that he is of a species that's much more developed and, Mm -hmm. but you never feel like he's a jerk about it. Like, it's not as if he's like, Oh, you pitiful humans. You're so ridiculous. He might as well wipe you off the face of the planet. He's just like, I know more and I'm going to, I'm going to show that to the audience in these little bits. Yeah. It's like, you know, the wise older person idea is the whole, you know, he's not really treating them badly or, you know, he's not looking down on them, but he's treating them kind of like how adults look at children who are like figuring things out. It's like, you know, they're doing something wrong, but they're learning for themselves. And as long as it's nothing terrible, you kind of just go along with it. Like, Oh, you're going to learn from that. But right. then, you know, over time, he gets fed up with it. And you can really see that. The same way, you you know, you get fed up with a, a little kid. If they keep doing the same thing over and over, eventually you're like, come on. You right. You're just making it. the same mistake. Like, come on. Learn, please. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of the, the, the other actors in the movie? Like, you have, like, kind of, uh, you know, you have Bobby's mom and you have the, uh, the professor. Did any of them stand out to you? I actually kind of thought Bobby's mom was a strange choice to put across from uh, from uh, Klaatu, Rennie as Klaatu, just because he has this, you know, for the 50s, a subtle acting. And she's like, <laughs> she's not so much. <laughs> she's not, it's like the normal 50s acting. Like if you watch any movie from the like late 40s, early 50s, they have that same style. But it seems strange to put such a subtle acting with such an you know over-the-top actor it just it didn't really seem to mesh well but it didn't bother me that much just because that same you know humans are overreactive in his mind so it kind of worked yeah i mean that's what i was just going to bring up is i agree with you like it made the scenes very awkward and you kind of like as an audience i found myself wanting those scenes to be over very quickly because you felt like at any second she was going to figure figure out that something was not right with him because they were so different in style but it does it does separate him further and make him seem like not just another human which is what you need in a movie like this yeah i mean it worked, but it was definitely strange. And I think that kind of worked as, you know, that came, that same dynamic happened with the, the boyfriend. I can't remember his name. Was it Tom? Yeah, Tom. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, like, even with Bobby and the mom, Tom is just, he, he's so, he's meant to be annoying. Like, he comes across as someone who's meant to just frustrate you. And he just seemed kind of extra there. And I understand why he was there for the plot purposes. You know, he had to be the one to call and, like, tip off the FBI about Klaatu. But for so many scenes, he's in there, and you're just like, oh, please finish whatever you're doing and leave. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. uh, So let's talk about uh, the writing. So one thing I brought up kind of in direction is the the idea of the news reports uh, to build tension. And I felt like it worked to a certain level, but also as a – you know, a modern person watching this, it's a, 
I, I felt like it's not as effective as maybe it would have been in the 50s. And I just wonder, like, back in the 50s, we kind of depended on news reports. We depended on the radio for for all these events. And now, of course, like, we have so many sources. And I, I found myself wondering, like, does this work now? So did those scenes work for you watching it in 2017? They worked on some level. There was There was this sense that... It's kind of really, okay, this is kind of related to my background. I am a media studies student, so I've studied the different... Well, this is the perfect person to ask this question. I had no idea. That's great. I've studied the way that we have progressed with, you know, you get everything from one source to suddenly you have a lot of sources and you have to figure out the truth through those sources. And it was kind of understandable but frustrating to watch these people, like, you hear it, like, you have a little boy handing out papers and then it says something super unreal and dramatic and everybody just eats it up, which it was realistic, but as a modern viewer, it's kind of like, Oh, how can you just believe this stuff? So that's the things I think worked better at the time than it does now. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I also found it interesting to watch this through a modern lens with them kind of talking about world politics and how little, things have changed like how sad that is that like you know they you know during the 50s of course you know cold war was kind of the the big news story of the time and it was about like who do we work with and who works against us and this world divided and the whole idea of this movie is like how silly that is when you kind of boil it down and this movie in a lot of ways is about all of us being human you know and we're all like we should all be able to get along and i watch this now and it's like uh this is 60 70 years later and we're kind of still in the same place like yeah the the players change who who we don't trust change changes maybe although russia is kind of now back in the news in in a similar way as it was in the 1950s and 60s so it's interesting to kind of watch you know, all these, you know, you think about all the years of cinema, all the years of life, and really we're in a similar place as the world was in 1951. Yeah. Um, I can't remember who said it. There was someone who was like, oh, it's kind of like a cold war. And he's like, what a war that only happens in the winter. Right. And I just, I was so amusing because like his concept of, of the idea of a cold war is like, so you just don't like each other and you don't do anything about it. And that's supposed to be a big deal. And, it, you know, at the time, that was obviously like a big fear. They were, you know, just waiting for another war to kick off, you know, another terrible war. But for Klaatu and for modern audiences, you kind of look at it with that same way. Like, it's just the status quo. That's just how it always is. There's always governments that don't like each other, but they hold off from doing anything terrible and you're just always waiting for the next one. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little, it's a little depressing uh, in that way. Um, the other thing I noticed here in the writing is there's a, there's an extended sequence that we kind of brought up earlier that where, you know, he wants to kind of flex his muscles here and show some power. So people listen to him. So they decide to essentially shut down electricity kind of everywhere. And I felt like that scene was effective, but also went on a long time. Like, I think my note was, do we need all of the electricity bits? Like there was like six or seven scenes. It felt like where we just went, Oh, like, okay, we get it. There's no more power. Like, I feel like that's the power of movies is that we can have one small scene and then we can kind of expand it out. And I just felt like it almost felt like they were trying to fill time. Like they're like, this movie isn't quite long enough. Let's stretch this out a little bit. So I actually found myself getting a little antsy and a little bored in those segments. Yeah, it was especially frustrating just because it seemed like a way to get away from having to show him explain things to the mom. So it's like, oh, you're going to look at all these people working on their cars while we're over here talking. This way, we don't have to actually show you what we're talking about, which it would have been okay if they just kind of cut it. Like, you know, hey, I'm going to tell you something, shot of the cop trying to start his bike, and that's how it goes. You know, it just felt like they were trying to make it seem the full 30 minutes, which was kind of ridiculous necessary. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, you have these thoughts when you watch these older movies like, oh, well, if we made a modern version of this, we could kind of clean this up and it would be fun. It would be quicker. Uh, But we're wrong uh, because I did watch the the newer version and it's terrible. And it like it's interesting because watching them back to back, you realize how much whoever wrote that script, how much they missed the point 
of the original and what it was about. And it just felt like, well, we got to make it flashy and we got to make oh, people have to die and people have to, ex- things have to explode. And it's like, no, that's not the kind of science fiction this is. And like, honestly, my only complaints about this movie are the supposed special effects and action sequences that go on just a little bit too long. Yeah, there were some that definitely went on too long, but as far as the, you know, the actual, like the action goes, I liked that it wasn't that much of an action oriented film. I liked that it wasn't the focus. The, you know, the situation and the characters were the focus. I don't really think, you know, there obviously are the types of science fiction films where you need kind of an action based plot, but this wasn't about, this was about ideas, not action. Right. This isn't Independence Day. Like, you know, and the whole idea of this character is that he is beyond humans and they don't have a need for violence and they kind of explain why in the end and what the punishment is for that. So the idea of creating this character and then having these huge action sequences where things explode doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like the only times he used any kind of violence is to kind of get people's attention and protect himself at the beginning of the film. He's, it's almost like he's protecting himself from these like savage beasts that are the humans. So, so that makes a lot more sense to me. The one thing that kind of did bother me, you just mentioned, you know, the explanation at the end, I kind of felt like going with that reason kind of undid a lot of his, like his, Oh, I'm so much better than you. Cause when you find out that the reason there's no war is that, Oh, if you, if you're violent, they kill you. So it's kind of like, like, it's kind of like he's been preaching this we're we're evolved, we're better than all of you, and then he he explains in the end. So the reason we're evolved and better than you is because everyone who isn't dies. Right. And they even they even goes as far to say, like, well, you want to act like this? That's fine. You spoiled little children. But if you come out in the stars and you act like this, we will kill you. It's like, whoa, how did we get here? This is this got really violent, really dark, really quickly. Yeah, that was like my one real, you know, gripe with the film. The fact that just at the end, they pull a big switcheroo on you. You're like, oh, hell, man. (laughs) It actually made me wonder, I mean, it's kind of an interesting thought experiment. We don't really know, obviously, but it it would be an interesting ploy to get people to behave. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be true. Like, we don't know anything really about Klaatu and where he's from and how these things work. So maybe he's just telling people that there is punishment out there because he's realized, oh, this is what humans respond to is the threat of violence. It's actually a really good idea. I hadn't thought about that. Maybe that was what they were going for, and that just went over my head because yeah. I just I felt like I was such a strange disconnect. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I remember like kind of the movies going along and watching. Oh, this is good. I really like this. I like the ideas in this. And then that scene happens, and it's like this huge one eighty, like tires screeching. Like, oh, <laughs> we've totally changed the outlook of everything here, and it did definitely stand out to me. It's one of those moments that I haven't really. I haven't really decided if it's good or bad, but it definitely took me by surprise. I do think it's effective, though, because, like, if anything's mm-hmm. going to get the humans to stop, then it's going to be, so you're all going to die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you want to live, maybe don't be assholes. That would be that would be much better for everyone involved. So, yeah. Um, so let's talk about the, the production value here. So this is this can always be tough uh, in movies from the 1950s. So we have to talk about uh, Gort, uh, which is uh, our aliens robot that he brings along uh, for protection. And does this look real? No. Is it really intimidating? Not really. But in the in the kind of mindset of like, this is what we could do in the 1950s. I still think kind of the all chrome look of of this creature really kind of works. And you could, you could at least put yourself in the perspective of an audience member in the 1950s and feel like, Oh, I could see how this might be intimidating if you hadn't seen everything that's come after it. Yeah, I definitely, you know, I've never been one that's like, Oh, it has to be realistically intimidating. I'm okay with the worst graphics, the worst monster costumes. I was like, you know, my mind can fill in the blanks, but I really, I thought he was effective, but I thought, you know, the whole bloated, curvy, it just kind of softened his look a little bit. He looked mm. like a big marshmallow man. <laughs> yeah. Like, inviting until he killed people. Yeah, I thought, honestly, the scariest part was there's, there's all these sequences where it just is completely still. 
and you're never sure if he's going to kind of come alive and, and attack again because they do set him up in the beginning as the one violent motion of this alien race. So you're just always kind of just waiting for that moment when he kind of revives himself. And even though it doesn't really happen much in the film, it does keep you on edge and it's enough. Yeah, it was kind of, <laughs> it's going to sound so nerdy. I, I kind of thought like, oh, he's like a weeping angel. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Keep looking at him. Don't. Yeah, and then when the when the guys stand at the gate, turn their back on him. I'm like, oh my god, what are you doing? You <laughs> turn around. You don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah, never from the big robot alien. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the other thing I noticed is kind of the music and the sound. I love the opening music. It just like it set that. Like you knew, even if you didn't know anything about this movie, you didn't know the title, you hear that opening music and you know you're in a science fiction movie from the 1950s immediately. And I love that it kind of sets that tone. But I did feel like the sound effects were a little bit over the top and they just like couldn't stop themselves. And it just sounds, I guess, just so stereotypical 1950s science fiction that it immediately kind of takes away any power that these sound effects would have. It kind of is because it's kind of the sound effects that we kind of relate to as spoofy. Like, we don't really relate to it as like, oh, this is kind of realistic. We think, oh, this is the sounds people use when they're making fun of science fiction. Yes. And it 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 still worked in a way, though. I just it kind of like, oh, hey, I've got to get used to this before I can really focus on it. Although I will say the UFO sound really like I bought that. Like I have a feeling if a UFO, like a, if a flying saucer actually came flying through, that's exactly what it would sound like. Like maybe that's the, you know, the inner child in me, but I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think also uh, just in general, I think the movie looks better when you have scenes in shadow. And I think you're going to, I mean, you're going to get that anyway uh, in a black and white film. Like that's, that's just always going to kind of look better because it gives it a little bit of depth. Uh, but there's, there's a particular scene where he first shows up kind of at this, I don't know if it's like a hotel or a bed and breakfast. Um, and he's kind of standing in the shadows and it gives this idea for the audience that we're actually not sure if we can trust this guy. Like he is our protagonist. He's who we're following, but there are several moments where you're just like, I don't know if I want, this guy around this kid and i like the way that that's set up i really like the lighting in this film like there are just a lot of scenes like there's that one where he's backlit and there's just this big hulking silhouette and all these people that have just been watching the alien story on tv they're like oh no what is it there's that but then there's also you know just other scenes where it's you know it's classic lighting techniques but they just look so good in this film like there's one where um the mom, she kind of like backs into the light mm-hmm. and just like illuminates this look of horror on her face. And it just was so fitting for that scene. I was like, man, I love this. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think, I think that's something that can easily go wrong too, if you overuse it, but you know, Robert Wise or whoever else was helping him shoot this, like really, really professionally done and really knew what they were doing. Um, so as far as favorite scenes, what's one of your favorite scenes in the film? One of my favorite scenes, it would probably be, the, this is going to sound crazy in a science fiction movie, but the scene where um, he and Bobby are walking around, I think it's after they've been to the cemetery, and he asked, he asked him, you know, did all those people die in, like, in war or something like that? And Bobby's like, well, yeah, of course they did. And like he has this look on his face. He's like so confused by that, the idea that, all these people die in war, but they keep, you know, we keep perpetuating war. Like he has this look, this look that's just so understand, like or misunderstanding. Like he, mm-hmm. we understand that he has no clue why we're like this. And that whole sequence, it was just him trying to understand humans and not. Yeah, no, that's that's a really great moment, actually. And one of the moments I was kind of referencing earlier when you're you're kind of watching this actor play this part of like trying to understand things that are really complex from a distance. And whenever you create that distance, when you just look at like, well, uh, all these people die in wars and not that much is changing. Maybe we shouldn't do this anymore. But of course, there's so many moving parts. There's so many variables. It's not just like, well, it's a good or a bad thing. But he sees things that black and white and just like, 
well, why would you, why would you keep doing this? That doesn't make any sense. And it actually, and it's perfect that it's in a scene with a child because it's also the, the way a child would see war. Like, I don't understand why we do this. But in this scene, the child is the one kind of with more knowledge than the adult, which is an interesting twist. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting in this situation to have the kid be, you know, a kid who's lost his father in war because it just it changes that dynamic just that little bit more. Like this little kid has always grown up understanding, you know, war and, you know, the concept of being in a war. And this grown up alien has no understanding of it at all. So it kind of, you know it changes that dynamic. So you see the difference between humans and alien or the alien race, even though it's also a difference between a child and an adult. Like he, he understands Bobby more than he does the rest of these humans, but Bobby still has a kind of more mature understanding of this topic than he does. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. There's, there's two scenes. I think when I talk about my, when I think about my favorite scenes that come up the first, there's, I think a movie like this always needs moments of levity. You need a little bit of humor. And there's a scene near the beginning of the film with all these frustrated doctors, um, cause he kind of essentially heals himself as they're trying to help him and them just kind of fumbling around and not understanding why things are working the way they're working and kind of worried that they're going to be out of a job. Like I love those, those little moments that made the movie kind of not quite so serious because most of the movie is pretty dour. I mean, it's about like maybe the end of humanity, maybe space travel. Like these are big, big ideas. So I love that little moment of humor. And the other scene I like is in the middle of all the kind of electricity going out sequences. It's between uh, Klaatu and one of our other characters just in an elevator. Um, and I think the way that's filmed being uh, – kind of surrounded by the power going out you that's the one moment i think you really do get a sense of klaatu and his race's power it's for me it wasn't so much the lights going out it's that conversation as it's all going on around them yeah definitely there's there's this sense that she's finally understanding exactly what she's dealing with but at the same time he is not being threatening, really. He's like, his demeanor isn't threatening. <laughs> he's showing this display of great force, but he's like, allow me to explain why this is happening. So it's kind of, it, it's a very, for the time, I think it's kind of a complex ideal <laughs> to try to look at this super powerful race of aliens who are also trying their best, or he's trying his best to not be a threat. Yeah. And yet there's still this moment of it's always difficult when you have like, a, you know, these two people in this confined space and one is much bigger than the other. There's always this sense of intimidation just from pure size. But the way it's shot, I think, helps us not despise this character, because I think if we if we hate Klaatu in this movie, this movie doesn't work and we're kind of rooting for the wrong side. Yeah, I mean, the whole film, you're hoping especially after he finally starts talking with the scientists, you're hoping it works. You're like, please listen to him. Yeah. Don't, don't be stupid about this. So if you fear him throughout the movie, it loses that impact. You're like, Hey, arrest that guy. And which is completely the, not the point. So let's talk about, let's talk about the theme of the movie. So we chose uh, xenophobia. So how do you feel like xenophobia tied into the day the earth stood still? I think just, you know, the other idea, which it kind of, you know, it's, it relates really topically. Like this is an idea that I had when I was watching the movie that it was kind of a really sad realization. You know, he comes off the spaceship and they don't try to, you know, harm him in any way until he pulls something out. And then after they shoot him, they're like just standing around with him, like, "Hey, let's get him some help." Like, you sorry, <laughs> that is so unlike. I always say this to my dad. I'm like, that that is a you're lucky to be white situation. Is this whole <laughs> like? Is this whole you know that would only happen in a movie in real life? As soon as he opens those doors, there would be you know every amount of force they have trying to subdue him. Instead of just like, hey, let's see what happens here. And like, even after he destroys the weapons, they would be like hightailing it out of there and calling it an airstrike. There is yeah. no way that that would be, you know, and it has, you know, it has that depiction of xenophobia against this strange new other. But at the same time, 
I feel is like light. Because these days, you know, that is not how that would be handled. Yeah, I mean, even in those days, probably not how it would be handled. It was something that I noticed as I was watching the movie for the first time, just like thinking like, well, that didn't escalate as much as I thought it would. Like I thought, you know, usually if someone, you know, some other would reach, you know, for something. I mean, if one person opens fire, probably two, at least two or three others would as well. And it would have been a lot more bloody and a lot more, a lot more difficult to explain. So I felt like that was okay. We've hit like, okay, this is movie territory. This is not, this is not terribly realistic, which is okay because I think the movie more than anything is trying to prove a point. And I think, I think it's interesting to talk about xenophobia because yes, we have the xenophobia of the Americans versus Klaatu. Right from the very beginning of the film, but also the whole idea is that Klaatu is totally against this idea of xenophobia. Is trying to bring these people together, and like the big effort in this movie is to stop Americans and other countries from being xenophobic of people in other countries. So I like that we kind of it becomes kind of this meta thing. Like yes, we're scared; they're scared of Klaatu, but they're also scared of themselves. They're scared of other human beings. So it's not just oh, it's because he's an alien and he's truly foreign and truly other like we have this mistrust of people around the globe well yeah the, the i can't remember her name one the old lady at the house she actually said you know where he's from and they wouldn't come in spaceships they'd come in planes or something and she's talking about the russians like she's clearly <laughs> saying, this isn't an alien spaceship this is like the russians trying to invade and it kind of, you know, that probably is the idea that a lot of people had. They saw something coming to Washington, D.C., you know, during the Cold War, and they're like, oh, this is it. They're <laughs> coming for it. Yeah, it makes sense that he he keeps making, like, they keep treating him like this other, but at the same time, it's kind of like a parallel for the Russians. And he talks to the, the I can't remember who he was, the guy at the beginning, the one who came to talk to him about meeting the president. Mm -hmm. He talks to him about meeting all the world leaders, and he's just like, that's never going to happen. Right. And it kind of, it really highlights, you know, the theme of the film, the whole nothing is, like, even an alien invasion cannot bring these world leaders together. Right. Like, nope, we're not we're not having that meeting there. It's got to be here. It's got to be at this time. I love that whole mm -hmm. sequence of scenes. The other thing that really hammered it home for me, there's a there's a scene when he first gets to the hotel and there's a breakfast scene the next morning where you all these people are kind of talking about, you know, what's going on in the world. And he's just kind of sitting there taking it in. And I think that's the moment where he truly understands, like, how scared people are and how mistrusting people are. And I love that. And that's one of those moments, again, where he kind of has that smirk on his face for the for, always looks kind of amused is like, he can't believe that people really interact and think this way. And it really hammers that point home. Yeah. I thought that was, that was, that kind of made me interested in his people more. Like I, I was kind of bummed. Like it makes sense for the film, but I was kind of bummed. We didn't learn more about them <laughs> just because even now in the 21st century, the kind of conversation that's going on at that table, that's the same kind of conversation that goes on at any t breakfast table. So right. it's interesting to try to think about well, what else would you talk, you know, what else would be the topic, you know, in light of these events, what would his people be saying about this? And that would, I don't know, it was just one of those things that made you think it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does make you wonder like what, not only what they would say about this situation, but what they would talk about in general. Is that, you know, like every all these problems are solved in that culture. And like a lot of like, yeah, we don't sit around the table and open up the newspaper anymore, but we all have our phones and we have what's going on in the world. And we talk about it with our with our friends and our family. But it's usually about like, oh, what terrible thing is happening around the world or in our own country uh, right now? And like, what would you talk about if everything was solved? So it'd be interesting to see like that culture and how they interact with one another. Yeah, because I don't think I remember a day in my life that has gone completely politics-free. So the concept of that not even being an issue, like, oh, there's no war, there's no, you know, governmental conflicts. That's just such a an abstract thought even now. And I kind of wonder if maybe, I mean, this is kind of reaching, but I kind of wonder if the filmmakers thought, you know, if what they would think if they realized that now, like 60, 70 years later, it's all still the same. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I I find myself wondering, like, what <laughs> what would I talk about if I didn't have something to complain about or something that scared me? So it was interesting to see that kind of from a separated perspective. All right. Um, so that's it for um, The Day the Earth Stood Still. So the movie we're tying this in with uh, is Life. And if you look at the IMDb page, it just says an international space crew discovers life on Mars, which doesn't tell you much. Uh, but in the trailer, it kind of looks like they discover life and then it kind of attacks and they got to escape. They got to figure out what to do with this thing and starts uh, stars Rebecca Ferguson, Ryan Reynolds, Jake Gyllenhaal. So are you excited to see Life? I am interested in life, but I'm not excited <laughs> to see it because I am a giant wimp. Anything slightly scary will give me nightmares for days, and this looks terrifying. This movie looks like the kind that I'm going to have nightmares about being in a space station attacked by aliens for <laughs> a week after I watch this movie, but I'm still going to see it just because it's such an interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting concept. It has a, a really good cast. Um, and the second I saw this trailer, I, it was one of those movies I knew like, okay, I'm either going to love this or I'm going to hate this. Like, I don't see any room for the middle for me because I, I really like this type of movie. Like if you, if you can combine science fiction and horror, like I am down, like this is, I mean, Alien is one of my favorite movies and I feel like that is the best combination of those two. And this definitely feels like it's trying to hit some of those, those buttons. It's trying to hit that kind of classic Ridley Scott alien buttons. And that's a lot to live up to because I think it's one of the best movies ever made. But honestly, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal also has become one of those actors that if he's in it, I'm seeing it. Um, and sometimes it ends up great. Uh, and then sometimes you get demolition like last year, which wasn't so great, uh, but he's still good in it. So I'm, I'm hoping for the best here. I actually am not a big fan of alien. You're going to be like, Oh no, but I only like that movie because I love Sigourney Weaver and I will watch anything she's in. Kind of like yep. you just mentioned with Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm not about Sigourney Weaver, which is the only reason I've seen those movies and she's great in them, but they scare the hell out of me. So <laughs> this is another one that I'm, I'm going to see it and I might enjoy it, but I'm not banking on really enjoying it. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, so before you head off one more time, uh, tell people how to contact you on Twitter. You can find me at, at Jana Wilford, J-A-N-N-A, since everyone thinks it has one A. Um, or you can read my reviews on Chelsea Loves Movies at WordPress. I'm sailing away. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So if you'd like to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook, on Letterboxd all over the place, all those social media sites, we are there under either Pop Culture Case Study or PC Case Study. So check us out there. Also, if you want to hear other great movie podcasts, check out followingfilms.com to find other shows like War Machine vs. Warhorse and The Best and Worst of the Best. Now, if you really want to go the extra mile for us, there's a way you can do that. You have some uh, extra nickels for us. We have a site on Patreon, patreon.com slash study, And there you can donate to the show on a per episode basis and get some really cool rewards but most of all it's just a really great way to support an independent podcast so we're there if if you would like to donate there so next time you hear me we will be doing a new release review on life starring jake gyllenhaal so stay tuned for that i'm going to ask you a series of control questions are you currently in a seated position Yes. Are you human? My body is. Do you feel pain? My body does. Are you aware of an impending attack on the planet Earth? You should let me go. So the story goes, but somehow we missed out on the part of gold, but we'll try.